welcome back to yet another Behind the Lens. And what a Behind the Lens it is today because it's a double edition. First, we were going to run it for 90 minutes. Now it looks like we're going to run into a full two hours. We are jam-packed today. Wrapping up the summer. Uh, This is the last show of August, the last show of the summer. Next week is Labor Day. We won't be here. We'll be kicking off the fall uh, on September 9th. But, boy, do we have a show for you today. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the writers, directors, the cinematographers, production designers, sound gurus, and so many more. Uh, delving into film and television and occasionally music, uh, literature, and the stage. Uh, today is just, we are everywhere, everywhere today. Um, you know, you can find my reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. You don't have to wait just for Mondays to find out what's happening with Behind the Lens. Um, I'm all over the place, and of course, always on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, I am right here on Adrenaline Radio, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, AdrenalineRadio.com. If you're near your computer and you feel like just watching me sitting here being stu- looking stupid, um, you can see all the really great swag on our tablescape, uh, all of our... Uh, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, and you can watch a live stream right now. Uh, I bet Tim Bender is watching. Um, Tim is one of our faithful, faithful uh, supporters, and I know he watches. Laura Perkins watches quite a bit. Uh, and something tells me Steve Lee may be watching today. Um, but again, we've got tons of Marvel stuff. Aladdin, Aladdin swag uh, after D23 this weekend. I'm sure every every Marvel fan out there, every Star Wars fan, Lucasfilm, uh, Disney Pictures, everybody is going gaga. I'm going gaga over confirmation that Ewan McGregor will be back as Obi-Wan Kenobi on a Disney Plus show starting in 2020. Very excited about that. Tom Hiddleston is officially, officially confirmed coming back as Loki. In a Loki show on Disney+. Plus, Take my money now, Disney. Take it. But do something to make the stock prices go up in the interim. Thank you very much. Uh, But on today's show, wow, wow, wow. We're kicking off the show at the quarter hour mark. We're going to have director Jason Axon joining us talking about his new film. And it is killer it is a doozy it is a 2d hand-drawn animation film just had its world premiere at fright fest in london on friday jason's calling us from london to talk about to your last death later in the show we're going to have writer director producer justin ward call us about his new film relish which has its world premiere september 6th at the burbank film festival In our second hour, we've got Janice Engel, writer-director Janice Engel, calling with one of the most kick-ass documentaries you are ever going to see, Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. And for those of you out there that remember Molly Ivins, 
boy, oh boy, we could use her now. One of a great, great journal, political journalist, uh, a woman, who, a Texan who spoke her mind, no matter what came out of it. God, I love that woman. Um, anybody who doesn't know who Molly Ivins is, see the doc. But before that comes out, uh, because it opens in Texas first, August 30th, then New York in September, and uh, on September 6th in L.A. the 13th. Google Molly Ivins, I-V-I-N-S. You are in for a treat. Uh, but it's going to be a real treat talking to Janice Engel about this documentary and uh, her journey putting this together and bringing it to us now in these tumultuous uh, sociopolitical times. And then we've got, he's back. Just got confirmation not 15 minutes ago. He's back. He's not in studio this time. But our favorite sound guru, Steve Lee, founder of the Hollywood Sound Museum, is going to be joining us. He's calling in at noon today uh, to talk about a very, very special event for the Hollywood Sound Museum that's happening uh, September 8th. So can't wait to have Steve back with us again. But... Something I'm very, very thrilled to kick off the show and talk about. Angel has fallen. Uh, as many of you know, this was my big. This was my big wait for the entire summer to see this third installment in the Fallen franchise. To see what Mike Banning is up to now, and more importantly for me, besides seeing Gerard Butler, <laughs> as if that's not enough, people. Um, this film, directed and also co-written by. A wonderful, wonderful man, uh, Rick Waugh. Rick Roman Waugh, I first met when he was 13 or 14 years old. Uh, this is like 30, 36, 37 years ago. I've watched him grow. I've watched him grow as a stuntman into a stunt coordinator, into a writer-director, um, focusing on human drama within a story. And, of course, celebrating action. And we're talking practical action. This is a great jump for Rick to tackle not only an established franchise like the Fallen franchise, following in the footsteps of Olympus Has Fallen, London Has Fallen, uh, but now Angel Has Fallen, to tackle it, but also take it in a new story direction. What we see in the box office has shown it. There were a lot of naysayers out there, but... The Fallen fans and the Gerard Butler fans were out in force this weekend. Over $21 million at the box office. The film surpassed expectations for opening weekend. And it's well-deserved when you watch this film. Because we now see it's not just the eye candy of Mike Banning trying to save the president, uh, save the world. Now Mike Banning has to save himself. But what is it about Mike Banning that has gotten him into the position he's in now? What has the life that he has chosen, how has that, what has taken the toll on him that brings him to this juxtaposition in his life, in his career, as the president's number one guardian, Secret Service man? It's a wonderful, wonderful character exploration. And that's something we haven't seen in the franchise. And I think that's what a lot of people, there are many people that can't 
get behind that or understand it. They just want to see rock'em sock'em action. And that's all well and good. But this is a refreshing look at the franchise, at an established franchise, and it's a refreshing look. And it's very hard for me to think of any other director that could have brought this sensibility to the film other than Rick Waugh, um, calling on all of the disciplines. If you look at any of his prior films, you look at Felon with Val Kilmer and Stephen Dorff. Uh, he actually brought out one of Dorff's best performances in his career. Uh, you look at Snitch with Jane with Dwayne Johnson. You look at Shot Caller. Or you look at his documentary on Iraq War Vets, That Which I Love Destroys Me. It's a lot of the interpersonal, the introspection. This is what now comes into play with Angel Has Fallen. And don't get me wrong, the action does not suffer by any stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, the action sequences in Angel Has Fallen are doubled from the last films. We now have 23, count them, 23 individual action set pieces in Angel Has Fallen. Not the least of which is one of, two, two of my all-time favorites. Uh, which you're going to hear me talk to Rick about later on in the show uh, in our exclusive interview, um, which I think the bulk of that you're going to hear in the second half, in the second hour of the show today, um, because it's always such a joy to talk to Rick. It's also a joy to talk to his brother, Scott Waugh, and I've got to say, be on the lookout for the new Jackie Chan movie. Scott Waugh is directing that and is currently over in Beijing working on that. And I got some interesting tidbits on that already uh, and how th the current political climate is affecting our filmmakers in China. Uh, and it's not for the better, people. So that's interesting stuff to come out about that. But as always, it was an incredible conversation with Rick um, and as it always is. And it's, it's a joy to see what he has done with Angel Has Fallen. And this collaboration with he and Gerard Butler is amazing. So amazing, in fact, the two of them love working together so much. No sooner did they finish Angel Has Fallen that they went and did another film called Greenland. Uh, so, and that should be coming out around March. So you'll get to hear more from Jerry and Rick in March. But right now, let's take a listen to what some of the people that worked with Rick Waugh, never done a franchise, comes into the franchise, takes it in a new direction, turns a lot of it on its head. What, what is it about working with Rick? So take a listen here to what Gerard Butler has to say, what Stunt Coordinator coordinator Greg Powell has to say what second unit director Vic Armstrong and stunt master Vic Armstrong for those of you that don't know used to double and do uh, double James Bond and do stunts in the bond in the original Bond films and also doubled Harrison Ford for a number of years and did in the Indiana Jones films and elsewhere and of course Nick Nolte's thoughts which we never know what what Nick Nolte's thoughts are until they come out. So take a listen to this little combination clip. There's no end to the brilliance of Rick because he's he is 
it's in his DNA, movie making. His whole family have been in movies for a long time. So he knows every element of making a movie. You know, he's a cameraman, he worked in stunts, he's a director now, but he also knows special effects. He does everything. And um, so he, he, one, gets the best heads of department in every field, from design to cinematography to... And, and then he pushes them, says, bring me more, make it better, go, go, go. He really pushes everybody. Uh, but in a way that comes from his passion, and I've never worked with a director with that kind of work ethic. He never stops, and he never stops being excited. And him and I have become real brothers because we, because I know this franchise as well, so it was also the two of us kind of coming together to take his idea and his fresh perspective and, and, and also keep those elements of the franchise that people love. It's definitely a help to us, you know, being a, being a stuntman himself and, and a coordinator on, on action films. He knows what we're going through, so he's a lot of help to us, you know. He's just not like a director who comes in and does a film who's never done action before. He's actually done action before, so it's great for me and even for Vic to get his vision on it because we all sort of talk the same language, you know. So it's been very helpful. Uh, you read it, you see you've got your your take on it, but it's always the director's take, you know, when, when you sit down and talk with him. And you got you visit the locations and what he sees in the locations, and everyone, you know, me, Vic, and Rick, and, and, and some of the stunt guys, we we talk about stuff and what we can actually do. We can make sure we give Rick what he wants, and maybe we might to to add to that as well, you know. Uh, but it's just a lot of talking and meetings, you know, about certain sequences, like this sequence, the lorry sequence we've got is all all. all uh, they're all different, and different input comes from different places. I think there's pressure to make it more inspiring, but not necessarily bigger, and I don't believe in action bigger is better. I think uh, cleverer is better and more interesting and sometimes more subtle. But I think as, as long as it matches the storyline and uh, justifies the story, then... Um, the pressure's off in that respect. The, the hardest bit is to make it original, to shoot it as though it's it's a documentary without the, you know, the born identity, shaky, shaky camera stuff. You still want to think you're watching a clip from somebody that's that shot it with a proper camera but has just captured a moment in history. So uh, that's the the challenging bit, is to, is to make it look interesting, not boring, not repetitive... It's all these little elements we, we all try and strive for every movie we make, and each movie has a different uh, need, if you like. I think the action will, will be really believable. You know, I think Hacksaw Ridge was as violent as it was. It was tremendously believable. You, you believe what you saw on screen, that people were getting blown up and burned to death, and I think in this one is the same. Um, everything that's in the movie is cutting-edge technology, which is happening today. The drones and things like that, that is a, a weapon that is out there today. I've read about it in, in newspapers even, you know. So everything in it is, is based in realism. Hopefully we shoot it based in realism. The actors are great, you know. You couldn't get better than Nick Nolte, Morgan Freeman. They're absolute just icons, in my opinion. I'm thrilled to work with them. Um, so I think the realism of it will will advance the series if you like it's not just crash bang wallop and blowing the whole world up it's it's stuff that's happening for real but very cleverly and realistically oh he's a great director rick is great yeah i you know something 
after 50 years, you, you can feel it, you know. You know somebody that's kind of in, in it all the way. Uh, there's just something instinctual about it. And uh, uh, the biggest thing with a project like this, these big action films, is that you have a director that understands the human part of it. The action part of it is not difficult. You need to have really great stunt guys and really great stunt coordinators and an actor that can do a lot of his own stunts. But that's the action side. That's going to carry the rhythm of the film. But who's going to give them rest? Well, that's in the story. And that was a compilation of Gerard Butler, Greg Powell, Vic Armstrong, and Nick Nolte. And you heard Vic mention Hacksaw Ridge, which, yes, he was uh, he was uh, stunt coordinator and second on Hacksaw Ridge, Mel Gibson's film. And those of you that uh, follow me, that uh, have been reading my reviews and interviews over the years, Hacksaw Ridge was my pick for you know best picture of the year, and Mel Gibson as best director when he came back to us after a 10-year absence. So this is, you know, Angel has fallen. There's a lot of, it's top-notch from, from top to bottom. So we're going to hear more. We're going to come back and we're going to hear from Rick Waugh talk about uh, Angel Has Fallen after all of our guests today. But right now, I am so excited. I am excited to welcome Jason Axon. Hi, Jason. Hey, Debbie, how you doing? Well, I'm so happy to be talking to you after watching your film, To Your Last Death. It is absolutely killer. It is gorgeous. Um, I, 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 love the, I love the film. How was the world premiere Friday night in London? Well, first, let me just say thank you so much for saying that. That's awesome. Thank you. Um, the world premiere went really well. We had a great time. It was awesome. And how did the audience receive it? Uh, really well. It was uh, it, it went over really, really well. Uh, there's a lot of twists and surprises in the movie, and the most rewarding uh, experience for a horror director is to hear people sort of cringe and make noises with the gore and stuff, and all that happened. It was it was wonderful. Yeah, I mean it's. I mean I actually went back and rewatched a second time because there is so yeah. there is so much depth and texture. In the animation here, it is graphic novel styling with even more detail. Then you you add in here these incredible voice castings. William Shatner, hello. Ray Wise is flawless. Um, you get in Morena Bakarin uh, also, and I'm and I'm so excited because Morena, we're going to actually see her uh, in March with Gerard Butler in. His new film, Greenland, when it comes out then, she co-stars as his wife. Um, But and then you've got Danny Lennon and a lot of this film. You know, how did how did the film come to you? And basically tell everybody, how would you describe the story? The story? Um, Well, the movie is a Saturday horror film and. The story, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but generally when a horror film ends, 
the main character, the, the final girl, quote-unquote final girl, is usually sort of bruised and battered in a hospital bed, and there's a, a police detective that sort of doesn't believe their story. Um, that's usually how a horror film ends. This is uh, CLS that starts there and forces that main character to relive the events with the promise that they can uh, change the events with, with foreknowledge and maybe have a chance to change the outcome. And, of, co- of course, the movie throws a ton of obstacles at her. It's never as easy as just going back in time and fixing everything. That would be my description of the film. Because you've actually, you actually have other forces that, at their whim, can change the rules of this game or this foreshadowing. Um, yes. So while you think you're foreshadowing, it turns out you're not foreshadowing because something has been thrown in the mix. Uh, to change things up. Um, it's just, it's the entire construct of the story. It's very exciting. It's intriguing. But, and, but above all, it's engrossing. This is a story, it, even going beyond your animation, the story is engrossing. It's not something we see that often. That's true. There is, there is, Genuinely nothing like this film out there in any way. How did this project come to you? Because I know that uh, it was written by Tanya Klein and Jim Cirilli, um, anim- yeah, and head correct. animator yeah. Danny Abram, but you're directing this. So this all falls to yeah. you. And I think this is your first animation, is it not? Well, yeah, this is my first feature film, and this would be my the first feature-length animated thing I've done. That's correct, yeah. Uh, the way the film came to me was um, uh, I had done a lot of um, uh, commercials and web series stuff for a production company, and Jim and Tanya, when they wrote the screenplay, they wanted to make it a live-action film originally, and the production company uh, talked them into doing it in, as animated because animated is sort of a, a budget that could be it would be a lot less expensive to do animated. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I worked with the other production company, I, I just over and over again just kept talking about how I wanted to do animated features. I just kept bringing it up. And so when this project came to them, I was the natural choice to direct it. Mm-hmm. What was the appeal of this script from a directorial standpoint? What your little director wheels start going? You know, what are, what are the first things that you're thinking of about how you bring this script to life? Uh, well, little director wheels is a good, uh, is a good uh, <laughs> phrase for that. Um, well, I like, I'm a big fan of comic books and graphic novels. And this script just felt like it was a supercharged graphic novel. Like mm-hmm. When you read the script, you could see the imagery of reading a really, really fantastic and exciting graphic novel. Like, um, like in the 80s, we had to watch him in those Frank Miller um, City and his Batman stuff, and this felt like a big, loud, colorful, amazing story to tell with that kind of imagery. Mm-hmm. So um, that's why the film has a lot of different comic styles in it throughout it, uh, just as sort of a reference to the graphic comic book style medium. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you watch this, and any graphic novel or or comic fan um, is you're going to see it's essentially homage paid to so many that came before. Uh, and, but something else that you do though is with your color, 
you expand from a traditional um, graphic novel color palette here. And I found that um, quite interesting. And you do it with the characters as identifiable marks and what's happening around them. And uh, you know, that's very similar to what in a live action film what would be done with your costume and your color and even with your cinematography if you're using a wash or something. Um, so I found that quite striking that that you dug that deep in the, into the development of this. Yeah, it was, um, I like to be able to uh, have an audience have a subconscious cue about specific moments and being able to design every aspect of the shot, not just the color, but, you know, the placement of the characters and the depth of field, stuff like that. Um, essentially designing a comic book panel. Um, that's very attractive. And being able to design every single moment. Like when you, when you do a live action film, you kind of, you know, you, you shoot what you shoot, you get the footage that you get. With mm -hmm. this, we could really be very specific and change things or fix things on a global scale all the way throughout the movie to make it, uh, to emphasize moments and make the audience feel any way we wanted to um, throughout any scene. So I'm glad that you liked it. That's really great. Thank you for saying that. Well, and you also have some moments because it involves a father and his four adult children. Boy, I can relate to that one. Um, especially with the sibling dynamic. Let me tell you something here, Jason. <laughs> this is really truer than life. Um, but watch, <laughs> watching the sibling dynamic unfold is it's beyond priceless. And everybody who sees this film is going to be able to identify with at least one of these siblings. I, there's no doubt about it. And that's something, the individual traits and design of each of the four siblings are impeccably done. You truly make each one an individual standalone character. And the only commonality they have is they share their father's blood. But you do have one moment in there that is... It is just pure magic. And I think you know the one I'm talking about on the floor in the office under the desk. Yes, I do. Thank you for saying that. Yes, of course. And in that moment, you, your whole color, your color palette shifts. Everything is bathed in blues. In live action, it would probably be a very desaturated, um, you know, light, inky blue-black tone. And here, but... It feels very warm, very connective, and it really pops in comparison to everything that we've been seeing unfold. And, I mean, very, very standout develop, uh, development and construct in scenes like that. And you have a couple others like that, too. Um, but nothing quite as powerful as that one. And helping fuel this, though, we have to talk about your voice cast um, you got Ray Wise as the father, Cyrus DeKalb. How did you score Ray Wise? Because the whole time I'm, every, he, every time Cyrus talks, I see Ray's face. I, yeah, I hear his voice. I see his face, and you have seen him be this demanding, commanding, and villainous before, and it works in spades. 
Um, well, Raywise, we, we had designed all of the characters for casting, but after we got Raywise signed on, he let us use his likeness for the character, and so it, it allowed us to kind of um, kind of crib from other Raywise performances from Twin Peaks and other stuff he's done. So I think we, you know it, it's just it was easier for us to make his performance bigger and more realistic because you can recognize that as Raywise and you know how Raywise looks when he gets angry and sleepy. Um, the way we got him was, I believe, is that he responded to the script. The script was, he thought the story was unique and unusual, and he really liked it. So we just got lucky that he, he connected with the material. You know, I'm not, I'm not surprised, because if this were a live-action film, I could see Ray Wise first in line to play the role of Cyrus. <laughs> I mean, that's how, yeah, that's how perfectly, it. you know, this character is and this role is for him. And then you bring in Bill Mosley... And I, lo- I love Bill Mosley. Um, and he's very, very effective here as well. Uh, and, of course, then you bring in Morena and you get Danny Lennon as Miriam DeKalb. And really, this whole thing is told through Miriam's POV. Yes. And that means a lot of, a lot of the dialogue falls on Danny's shoulders and one of the key things that she does, um, you worked so well with her in evoking different emotional beats with the cadence of her voice and the emotionality of what comes forth um, because of the situations that Miriam finds herself in. And whereas this could have been one note or somebody just going into the sound booth um, yelling to create a different tone, um, there's a lot of depth and texture into the vocal performance. Danny is an amazing actress. Um, I, I've known Danny and I worked together on a TV show called Let Me uh, before this, and I've known Danny for years. And Danny did an audition for the film and was the only choice. Like every other person in audition, there were people that were great, but Danny was the only person whose audition was at the emotional level that you're describing. She is just an amazing, incredibly talented actress. Mm-hmm. And of course, how do you get Bill Shatner? Come on. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like, okay, for what he does and the visual images that we have, you know, I kept waiting to hear him go, Space, the final frontier. Um, he just, you talk about an ace in the hole. How do you how do you get Bill Shatner for this? Um, Bill Shatner came to us through a connection through um, Jim Surreal. Jim Surreal knew someone that knew Mr. Shatner, and we approached him. He he is also someone that responded well to the material, um, and we were really really happy to get him. And he's so William Shatner is such a funny and warm person in real life. Uh, working with him was a dream come true. So uh, we are so happy that even the movie, we're so happy with this performance in this film. You know, I'm curious. I'm curious, Jason. What was the animation process like here, and why the decision to go with the 2D hand drawn? Uh, the animation process. The film, the film was animated entirely in After Effects, which is a style, I guess, more or less pioneered by um, adults from TV shows. The 2000s. I'm not sure if you're familiar with some or not. Mm-hmm. Perhaps, maybe. Uh, and so, 
we went with adult. We, people usually use Flash for this kind of animation. We decided to use After Effects because the people on our staff do After Effects a lot better than Flash, but we need to make adjustments to the shots or scenes to be able to do it no matter who on the staff was available. Okay. Um, we used animators from all over the world. We didn't have an in-house uh, animation staff. We hired people in, in different countries, and so um, that way, if, if it turns out we couldn't reach somebody through Skype or something, someone on our staff could fix it. <laughs> which is the result being that the style is sort of close to the show Archer. Do you know what Archer? Uh, oh, I know Archer quite well. Sure. So we, we, we love Archer, and we want to aim for the Archer style, but sort of keep it within our budget uh, at, at, uh, for a feature film. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was made in that. But After Effects would be the main thing we use. We use different programs for different things, but After Effects was the main animation engine for the film. Mm-hmm. Well, one more question before I let you go. Actually, two more before I let you go, Jason. Um, sure. You know, what did you, being your first feature, first full animated feature, what did you learn about yourself as a director in the process of making To Your Last Death? that you will now incorporate into your future projects? Well, um, when you do animation... Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so what I learned is that um, when you first... Making a film takes a long time, and you have to... When you first start making a film, you first start imagining what you're going to do, you'll have an instinct for what you want to happen when, for what you want scenes to look like, or how long they are, or pacing. And... Since films take years to make, you have to learn to trust your original instinct about what you had originally imagined. And because things take so long, because you see some of the same thing every day, a lot of the same shots and scenes, you sort of second guess yourself. So it's really important to just trust your instinct as a filmmaker and know that the decision you made originally is the right one and to not, as time goes on, get, you know, sort of. Uh, used to something so much that you feel you have to change it to make it more uh, exciting or different. Mm-hmm. Be that. So now yeah. you just had the world premiere. Where does to yeah. where does to your last death go from here? Uh, we're having a the, the U.S. premiere in New York City on August 28th, which is in a couple of days, which happens to also be my hometown and my birthday. So if anyone listening is in New York City wants to come to that festival. Um, they should do that. And um, we're also we're having a training in Utah after that, and I believe one in New Orleans later on in, in September. And anybody who wants to find out more information on To Your Last Death website? I believe it's toyourlastdeath.com. I, I, hope that's, I hope that's it. I think that's what it is, toyourlastdeath.com. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Jason, I can't thank you enough for calling in today from London um, to talk to talk about to talk about to your last death. I hope you'll come back on the show as the film starts getting more exposure in the states. Of course, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jason, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. And that was Jason Axon, director and editor of To Your Last Death. And now, now we have the incomparable Justin Ward joining us. Hello, Justin. Hi, Debbie. How are you? I am very happy to be talking to you today about Relish. 
Talk about a (laughs) talk about a departure from UFC TV, rock stars inside the UFC snowboarding. Um, Relish is anything but what you have been known for for so long. Um, But one thing that translates well from the documentaries, the series, the other things you've done is your level of excellence. Um, Oh, thank you. What a charming, this is a charming film. Um, I didn't know what to expect with it, but it, you know, it's engaging. It's charming. I love the character development, love the character development and the interaction amongst your, you know, your five principles. Um, Where did the idea, because you wrote and directed this one, so I'm curious where the idea for Relish came from. Well, I think, first of all, thank you so much for the compliments. Yeah, I'm really proud of this project. I'm really proud of this film, proud of everybody in it. These these actors were incredible. Uh, It was shot in nine days, which is crazy, so we got one or two takes. Okay, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. stop right there. Stop nine days (laughs) Nine, Nine days. days. Every filmmaker listening right now, their jaw has just hit the ground. Oh my! <laughs> oh my God, Justin! Wow. Okay. While I get over uh, over my shock here, continue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the idea came from I really wanted to explore a couple of themes. Uh, one is what is freedom, um, and so you know, for for teenagers, I think that's a really good question, especially. now is the perfect time for a character and, and a film like this. Um, and I have to say, Tyler's portrayal of Kai is just flawless. 
emotionally oh. flawless. Really, He's an incredible human being. Uh, you know, all your entire cast. You've got Tyler Dechiar as Kai, Hannah Hayes as Aspen, our little social social media doll, Mateus Ward. <laughs> um, I don't know how you how you dealt with him. I mean, come on, you know, as is <laughs> Levi. Uh, Mateus happens to be Justin's son. Then you've got Chelsea Zhang as the alien loving I have been. You know, she she fill she fills the great the great role from Independence Day. I was taken by you know that Randy Quaid had. I was taken by aliens and they're coming back. Um, <laughs> and then you've got Rio Mangini as our all around jock and and good looking guy. He's got some Scott Eastwood qualities to him, I have to say. And then he also does double duty as doing the music for the film. Um, very talented. So you, you put together this ensemble. And how difficult was the casting? Because for each of these very distinct personalities, not only do they have to be able to stand on their own and stand out as individuals, but they have to mesh and become cohesive and believable as a group, as a group of friends. And we see that here. So I'm curious how difficult it was with the casting to find this perfect blend. It was very challenging. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I really wanted to achieve was I wanted a, a transgender uh, character that wasn't a victim, mm -hmm. uh, but that you could still feel the pain that they have to suffer. And so that was a really tricky thing, one to write, and then also to cast. So um, I had finished the, the, the screenplay, and, and I was pretty proud of it. And, and then I had this daunting task of, okay, now i got to find a real transgender to play this part. And unfortunately, I didn't write it for anyone specific, like you probably should. Mm. And so I'm like, we're, we're receiving hundreds of tapes, and we're, we're, we're uh, embarrassingly, uh, I'm going to say we're stalking Instagram uh, and social media, and we're trying to find that right person that had the quality that I felt Ty had, and, and we were very fortunate to, to find um, Tyler out in uh, New York, out in Queens, um, had done a very small video, uh, had never really acted before, um, and had certainly never been in a film, and certainly didn't carry a film ever, um, but he'd never been in a film before, and, and so we basically took a risk, and, and I'd worked with him for about uh, three or four weeks. Uh, my son, Mateus, was a co-producer on it, so he ended up uh, sort of giving him a crash course in acting over a period of two weeks on Skype. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I brought all the actors in uh, for about a week, and we rehearsed in a uh, very fortunate Dennis Lavelle uh, studio, let me use their studio uh, to rehearse uh, with all the actors so that we could really hit the beats and get that relationship, those relationships built. But, yeah, it was very challenging. I knew that, that Hannah Hayes was somebody that I really, really wanted for this part. Um, uh, I've seen her into the bone, and uh, she, she was a friend of Mateus's, and I'd always liked her acting. I thought she was very, very talented. Mm -hmm. um, and I, Chelsea Zhang uh, was one of those that uh, I went through so many takes, takes, and there's so many talented young women out there. But Chelsea, when she she was on screen, it wasn't even a question. It's like, yep, there she is. There's, there's, there's my foyer. I love it. She um, lights up on screen. She lights up. Um, <laughs> uh, her per her personality comes through, and in one moment it's almost like she's a little girl, and in the next moment, she's wise beyond her years. Uh, but she mm. is luminous on screen, and it really yeah, stands out. Quality. Those are the qualities I found. I wanted somebody who had those qualities, and I'm so glad you said that because she nailed it. She really just 
incredible. And of course, a very and Rio, Rio, Rio was somebody I always wanted for the part. He actually was one of the ones that when I was writing the script, uh, I, I always sort of had him in mind. I knew him in the past had done uh, some Disney stuff when he was younger, so I knew of Rio. I knew about him. I always thought he was a talent, um, and I just felt like he could bring something very special to this role. Uh, and he did, and then uh, it was hilarious because during rehearsals he just kept pounding me, who's your composer, who's your composer? And he's 15 <laughs> years old, this kid, and he composed the movie. It's, it's, it blows my mind. <laughs> well, you know, that's one way to get something done, you know, in nine, just double up on things. You bring your son in there, <laughs> and it's like, look, I'm dad, I'm the director, you do what I say. Uh, then you bring in, you know, somebody else who can double dip on things. So... This is one way to cut down on your shooting. This is why you can get it done in nine days and then go into post. Uh, you know, so, and I have to say, I am. I love the cinematography. Of course, that starts with your cinematographer, Brian Koss. Brian is just incredible. I saw what he did uh, for Leah Thompson with the Year of Spectacular Men. Brian has such a command of lighting and color. Uh, and shooting out in desert areas, you get what many may think is a bland canvas, but it actually is very textured. Your lighting is textured depending on the time of day, depending on what your landscape is that the light's hitting. And Brian makes the most of it. And you really get some beautiful imagery. And then it's compounded by what I have to call the pretty woman scene, you know, uh, trying on dresses and, and outfits in a store. Uh, you know, what led you to Brian and how did the two of you develop your visual tonal bandwidth? Because you actually have underlying serious issues here, but you keep the visual tone light. Yeah, that was, that was one of the things that we talked to, talked about a lot was um, I really wanted um, I wanted these. I feel like there's a lot of, like you said, there's this texture, there's this subtext, there's these feelings going on, there's these emotions that are going on that are really deep. But once they left the facility, my idea was, and I kind of pitched it to him saying, look, we've got to create Alice in Wonderland here. They're going down the rabbit hole here. Mm -hmm. they're, they're escaping uh, the, the real world, quote unquote, which is dark and dreary, and everyone is judging them for something they've done or who they think they are. And now they get to go into a world of Alice in Wonderland where they can be anything they want to be. How are they going to deal with that? And I said, so I want to keep the, the, the look and the feel of the picture bright and colorful, and, and I wanted hope. And that's the one thing that, look, I love dark movies. I love, you know, horrible, you know, throwing things at your characters that are horrible. But for this movie, I really felt like with teenagers, it was just nice to have this sense of hope going through the whole film. And I think Brian was able to capture that visually really, really well. Yeah, I mean, we get all the fun that teenagers are supposed to have. We feel <laughs> the fun and the freedom. Because here you have this group, uh, these group of teens, and you know they're in a facility getting treatment for one thing or another psychological counseling for for drugs or or for social media obsession or you know or can't come to grips with who they are or gaming obsessive and overly shy um and they're all outsiders and yet it's being outside that is a common thread and it's the fact they're all teenagers and they just want to be teenagers they want to be teenagers and not be labeled not be uh, thrown in and commanded to 
be somebody they're not. And your visual tone really lets us feel the freedom and fun that they're having just being teenagers when they're on the road. And I'm so glad you said that. Thank you. It, it, it really, really makes all the difference in the world. And, and then, of course, you have some really funny, funny, uh, you know, you've got a very funny set piece going on when they stop at a, a gas and sip that's called Relish. And <laughs> you bring in Cameron Engels, who is hilarious as a, as a server, who really fits in with this group cr- quite well. But, you know, you, you fall on some, some trope antics there that work really well, but the response from all the teens is not what you expect. And uh, that's something, you know, that it's, it speaks volumes as to your skill as a storyteller. Well, thank you. Yeah, Cameron was wonderful. He's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, and, and he was great because uh, it, it really came down to that, that part for, for two different people. And Cameron was just such a, a joy on green in his case. And, and when I called him and talked to him, I, I knew he was the one. Um, and we did mo- most of the auditioning on tape, which I'd never done before. My first film I'd done in in-person auditioning. And Cameron just lit up the screen, much like Chelsea did. And, and I said, you know, the thing that I really wanted out of that particular role was I wanted you to feel like, you know what, if this kid, if this kid weren't at this diner or were in that facility, he'd be one of the cast members. He'd be one of the five. Cause yeah. He, he's got that same thing, and he's got his backstory. Um, and, and I think he really brought that uh, very clearly to the uh, to the role, and it was fun to see how he just sort of slid. And literally, I, I did it visually, had him slide into the group, just so you got that sense that he's sliding up into them, you know, into their DMs, if you will, just sliding right into this group and fitting right in. And so I'm glad you say that, because that was really important to me. And, and then you carry it through with your costuming. You know, with Cameron, he's got his little bow tie on, which is just the cutest thing in the world. <laughs> And you've got Chelsea's character of Sawyer. Uh, She finds an outfit in their in their pretty woman shopping moment, Um, you know, that has it's glittery and it's lame and it has it has kind of an alien look to it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then Hannah's character of Aspen very much. She she picks up on a Sharon Tate kind of 60s vibe. Um, so every, all these little details, and that's something that so many filmmakers, especially on a low budget, no budget film like this that you shoot in nine days time, they overlook little details and you have not overlooked the little details. You know, the devil, the the devil is in the details here. It really is. And, uh, you know, you re and. It comes through in spades. You know, I'm curious, for you as a filmmaker, Justin, was there any, is there any kind of learning curve for you uh, between doing, <laughs> <laughs> doing documentaries and doing narrative features? Well, it's funny because I, I started off actually in, in narrative film. I was fortunate enough to work with some really great directors um, early on in my career. Um, as assistant to producers. Um, and so I was, and, and I always sort of found myself close to the director for some reason. Um, and then, you know, once I sort of had some opportunities to go produce some uh, documentaries, I went off and made a career out of that, had a family. So in my mind, it's always been I, I've wanted to do narrative, and that's sort of been my dream. Um, and now that my kids are older, I sort of am able to take sort of more of a risk and do that. And so it's really exciting for me. Um, but, yeah, the, the learning curve is, I think, for me, is... Um, that 
time. You know, I, I always wish, every time I just said that, I always wish I had more time. Um, and I think that's the one thing with, with the documentary, you sort of go, yeah, I, I got to spend a lot of time on this. I just have to, with, with, the, with the narrative film and the structure, the way that it's done, you just don't have that, that time. I, I can't just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy around all day, or I'm going to spend all day on this one scene. It's, you know, um, so you're, you're limited to a couple of hours, you're limited to a couple of takes. But, you know, I think the one thing that I was blown away is that, you know, in the first couple of takes, we got what we needed. And, mm-hmm. and I started to, to feel like, you know, this, like, you know, Clint Eastwood was over my shoulder or something saying, that's all you need, dude. That's all you need. That's you, it. You're going to get it in one or two. If, they, if the actors really understand the, 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 the sort of the arena you put them in and the world and their characters and you've done that work and they've done that work, then you don't need more than that. And I really feel that that's the thing that I really learned was, was that, um, that we all, we all, you know, groan about not having enough time, but, but sometimes not having that time sort of puts everybody on their A-game. And I think that's what everybody did here. Mm-hmm. Well, now, another big difference between documentaries and narratives, especially when you're shooting a narrative and you're getting what you need in one or two takes, um, documentaries, as we all know, a lot of research goes in. A lot of times you're pulling uh, a lot of archival footage. You're culling through research materials. I've talked to some filmmakers that have had four and five hundred hours of documentary footage to call through. Is there a big difference in your editing process time-wise between (laughs) these documentaries that you've done and doing a narrative? Obviously, you're not going through 400 hours of footage with your narrative. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, the editor, uh, Eric Swanson, was one of my uh, lead uh, leads, a post-producer on, and he's a phenomenal editor on Rockstars, my National Geographic show. So it's funny you say that. Um, um, yeah, and I think that the one thing that, you know, we sort of, the, the learning curve for both of us on, on this film was the idea of what you talked about, the attention to the details. Mm. It, it's, it's sort of like there's not, you don't spend the time on the takes because you don't have, you have to go through so much footage, but what you do spend the time on is where exactly do you cut and how does this cut lead to the next scene and what impact is this going to have when we cut here versus there. And I think that's a lot of um, the learning curve that, that he and I sort of sat through and, and played with and had a lot of fun with was sort of finding those moments of like, do we really need this whole scene? No, we don't. We don't. We need this one line or this one look. Um, and so a lot of it was, uh, honestly, fixing my writing, to be honest with you, um, <laughs> because um, he's such a phenomenal mind, and, and, and he just basically could look at it and say, your story is right here, you can do this, and, and tighten all this up. And, and so I think in a lot of ways, that was, a, answering your first question, with a lot of help to me as well, with, with lear- that learning curve of, of, you know, show me, don't tell me, because it's a very talkative film, I think you notice, it's, there's a lot of, I love the word, I love words, I'm a Shakespeare fan, I'm a poet fan, I, I'm a literature major, mm-hmm. I love words, but sometimes it's just spending time with the character um, and, and really milking that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be remiss not to ask you about one aspect of the film, a lot of it takes place in the confines of a van. What kind of challenges did that present for you and Brian? When you're shooting quite a quite a good bit within a van packed with five kids, <laughs> um, it's funny because I think that was the hardest part of the movie and also the most fun. <laughs> we were all locked in this hot van driving uh, up in uh, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we we were fortunate enough that a line producer Bernie uh, Gold was just amazing, and he got us a day of driving um, uh, out. With police officers controlling traffic, 
Um, and so, you know, I mean, again, I think, as you can tell, there's not a lot of dollar shots. There's not a lot of drones. There's no, you know, helicopters. There's not a lot of fancy shooting with the camera. So, you know, when you're on an ultra-low budget, um, you're really focusing on what's the best angle I can get. And so rigging the van, you know, stressed me out because it took, you know, so much precious time. But once the, the cameras were on the van and we started going, everything went smoothly and fast, and, and it really it went well. So I think the morning was the stress, was getting the, the, the van rigged. Uh, when you just don't have the time and you're watching the light go away and you're just going, wait a second, this is killing me. Um, but in the end, the actual shooting time was very quick uh, because the actors knew what they wanted to do. Um, I knew what I was looking for in the scene. Um, and Brian, obviously, uh, had some great camera angles that I think were a little unique and stuff. So it was fun. You know, and that's always difficult when you're, conf- when you're in a confining space. Uh, you know, we saw that on the film Lock, where the entire film takes place in the confines of a car. You got to figure out how to change up your angles so that you know your audience isn't bored. And you and Brian did a beautiful job of that of giving us different perspectives within the van that, and they were in keeping with the emotional beats of each character at a given moment. Uh, and well, thank you. and I really I I like that. You know, we've got a, a scene where Theo is not feeling that well, and the camera goes up, and you know we're dutching downward on him. Um, so that he's no longer in a power position because he's always been the strong one that everyone looks to. And now he's he's very vulnerable. He's ill. And the camera captures that. You, you very succinctly bring the camera up, dutch it down, so Theo looks even smaller and more helpless and vulnerable in that moment. And it's those li- there again, it's those little touches. And it just helps so much and adds other new layers to the story to the storytelling process. Yeah, and, and you know, the, I think the, the hardest thing of this film, and this is the one thing that, you know, I, I didn't realize being, obviously, you know, if you knew the narrative, my second film, my first film was about one man. It was about one man and a couple supporting characters and a lot of, you know, smaller roles that kind of came in and out of his life. Mm-hmm. This one was about five people. And, and so one of the things that when Brian and I sat down and started talking about how we're going to cover this is, you know, he's like, you're pretty ambitious. You know, you have five leads, and they have a lot of equal time. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was the biggest challenge, was trying to make sure that, you know, we we knew who to cover when during all of these scenes and who was important. And if someone wasn't saying somebody, to make sure we got them at least reacting and listening so they were engaged. Um, and I think that was one of the biggest, as a director, the challenge uh, is having five leads uh, with not a lot of time. And, and uh, a couple of takes and, and pickups were always a challenge, and inserts were always a challenge to get. Um, so that that was the I think the hardest part of this movie was having five different distinct voices that you need to <laughs> capture and get coverage on. Well, all five of them come together in a perfect harmony, Justin. So where can everyone see Relish? I know the world premiere is coming up September sixth at the Burbank Film Festival. Yep, absolutely, and you can you can get tickets to go see that. Um, we also have a deal that uh, it's going to be uh, coming out in November. Um, on the digital platform uh, to be decided, and I'm not supposed to talk about it, but um, I will be able to, uh, if you check that Relish, the movie, on all social media, we are going to be announcing um, that deal, and then there will be an on-demand deal as well. So in November, Relish will become uh, readily available to everyone. But definitely September 6th at 8 p.m. at the AMC in Burbank. Uh, it's the world premiere uh, at the film festival. We're up as a semifinalist. 
Uh, and uh, it's a great festival. It's a lot of fun, a lot of great filmmakers, and a lot of great people involved in that. So we're excited and proud to have our movie there. We just got back from uh, Madrid, where we won um, Madrid International Film Festival, and we were uh, very, very honored with uh, a Best Original Screenplay uh, Award, as well as uh, sweeping the whole festival for Best Feature Film. So that was exciting, and we're very proud. Well, as well you should be. And, of course... Anybody in the L.A. area, the AMC in Burbank, it's a huge theater. There's lots and lots and lots of parking. There's no excuse (laughs) to not go see Relish on September 6th because tickets are still available. Justin, thank you so much. This has been such a joy having you on. I hope you'll come back. I hope you'll come back in November when we can talk more about it and enlighten everybody and remind them about the film when they can all get it and see it themselves on digital. I would love that. I would love that. Justin, thank you so, so much, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you, Debbie. Bye-bye. And that was Justin Ward, writer, director, and producer of Relish. World premiere, September 6th in Burbank. All right. We were going to do a short break, but we're not. We're going to go right to our our surprise last-minute special guest. Hello, surprise last-minute special guest, Steve Lee. Am, am I the third caller? Do I win Springsteen tickets? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Hi, Debbie. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm sorry. This... I, I had to use that joke. I've been waiting all morning to use that No, joke. that was good. I like that. That was really <laughs> good. It's so strange talking on the phone and not having you here in studio. I know. I'm supposed to be there. I know. Do I still, do I still set a record? Um, am, I, am, I, am I like, I'm up to three or four now, well, aren't I? Well, now with your phone, this is four. Yeah, you you've got the oh, record. Wow. You you let's see. Carol Cook has Carol Cook has three three uh-huh. phoners. Um, let's see. Ned Airbar <laughs> has okay. two. It's not a competition. I was just curious. Well, no, you actually no. You're in. You are actually now it, with this phoner. You are now uh, the most frequent guest we've had either on wow. the f- in in the studio <laughs> and on the phone. You <laughs> hold the record for being in studio though, so that's great. Thank you. I know that matters uh so much to you. But I, I, <laughs> right, right. I'm so- Well Ben Burt seems to think so. He 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 was he laughed at the notion that I was always on your show. <laughs> I well he laughed on the red carpet for TCM Film Festival when I brought it up. That's I said, right. And he's and right. he cracked up. It's on video. Um but every, every, everyone yeah. he's, can he's a dear friend. I appreciate that. But I'm you know, I was gonna talk about the Hollywood Sound Museum anyway today because you have we don't have a show next week because it's Labor Day and you know and right. and you know Big Boss he doesn't want to pay Pam time and a half for a holiday to work so well you need a day off occasionally <laughs> Pam does need a day off she's nodding her head <laughs> in the booth yes 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 um, but you, you have a big event coming up here. Yeah, and I I appreciate you having me on to give it a quick plug. Yeah, Um, at the Scum and Villainy Cantina on Hollywood Boulevard. Have you ever been there? It's it's a fun place. I I went there a number of years ago when a very dear friend of mine was a bartender there. But because of management Uh changes and situations, she stopped working there. So... Yeah, it happens. 
it it happens, but you know. Yeah. But no, it is. It's a yeah. very very fun. It's a fun yeah. bar. It's a very fun place for for people don't for people who don't know it. It's a it's a Star Wars themed bar, but but they welcome all franchises of of fandom. It's it's a geek safe haven as as the owner JC refers to it. Uh, and it's a fun place. They have great cocktails. It's amazing. And on September eighth, on Sunday, starting at about two thirty. Uh, we're going to have a benefit for the Hollywood Sound Museum there. And we've got a bunch of great guests lined up, uh, including the great Richard Anderson, who joined me on your show. Richard's going to be there in person? Yeah, he's going to be there in person. Oh, my gosh. Uh, We're going to be doing Q&As with him and Mark Mangini. Whom, Mark, whom I, I know you're, you're familiar with, too. And Mark's been on in the studio with me on the show, too. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, Mark's great. I worked with him for, for 20 years, you know, and mm-hmm. he supervised the sound on, uh, like, three different Star Trek pictures, like Star Trek Four, Star Trek Five, Gremlins, Inner Space, mm-hmm. uh, Blade Runner 2049. Yep. And he won an Oscar a couple of years ago yep. for Mad Max Fury Road. Yes, he did. Um yeah, no, he's a great guy, and we're gonna we're gonna talk to all these wonderful people about their work in uh, in film sound. I still think you should get Paula Fairfield. I, you know, she's hard to she's hard to track down. Um, but uh, yeah, I would love to have Paula. It's funny they they did a theming at uh, they did a, a month of of uh, themed events at the cantina for um, for the show um, for Game of Thrones. Her, her uh, yeah, Game of Thrones, and uh, I think she she snuck in for that. I don't I don't think she made a she made a loud appearance, but she came in for that. But yeah, she but, is. Uh, no, she'd be great. I, I'm a big fan of her for, work. For those that don't know, she is the mother of dragons. She created Absolutely. the sound of the dragons for Game of Thrones, uh, among yeah, great. among many other things. I just I adore her, and I just am a huge fan of her work. Um, oh, absolutely. And she's a great person, too. She's a sweetheart. Uh, and she has cute dogs. That's right. <laughs> who have made it into some of her shows, some so, of the recordings of her dogs. But now you're also going to have giveaways, and you're going to have stuff yes. uh, stuff on display? Yes. Uh, for, for a suggested donation, because this is a benefit, right. uh, you can have a picture with uh, the three Oscars that uh, the museum has in its collection, uh, where they're going to be set up in a booth, and you can slide in behind them and take a picture with three Oscars. That's an opportunity a lot of people don't get. But so you don't touch that'll them. That'll be really fun. But you don't touch them. No, we've got we've got white gloves. They are museum pieces now, and we're trying to take care of them. So, yeah, yeah that, that is... That is one catch. But now, I, <laughs> now, what is the third Oscar? Because we, we unveil you unveiled Oscar one here on the show. Yes. You unveiled Oscar two, and I know you recently just got Oscar three. So, what is Oscar yes. three from? Well, uh, the dear uh, Lisa Varney, who called into one of our shows yes. too while we were while we were on the air. Yes, she's she's a dear friend of the museum. In fact, she's on our board, and. She pledged uh, her father's, her late father, Bill Varney's two Oscars. Uh, you have seen the one from mm-hmm. Raiders of the Lost Ark. We've, yes. we've had that in our collection for a while now. But just recently, we took possession of uh, Bill's other Oscar for a little movie called The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, it's a little, yeah. That's just a minuscule, yeah. minuscule It was dot. a little, 
independent film. I think I saw it once. But anyway. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I think they might have mentioned it this but, weekend at D23 in passing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have a thing about Star Wars there now, don't they? Something like that, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's... Yeah, but those three Oscars are going to be on display, so it's very impressive. And uh, you can have your picture taken with them. Um, and, yeah, we're going to be having giveaways. We've got a bunch of T-shirts we're going to give away. Uh, the uh, renowned sound effects recordist Rick Veers uh, is, has pledged several of his books that he has signed. Oh, wow. Including the Sound Effects Bible and his latest book, Make Some Noise. Uh, so that that's going to be fun. We're going to be giving those away. Uh, we're going to have on display our uh, a demo for one of the museum's uh, interactive exhibits, <gasps> where you get to explore the history of certain sound effects. Uh, and uh, the the one that we're we're going to be showing is the Wilhelm scream. You can I actually was just going to say. Scr- yeah, it's an interactive experience where you can hear clips from movies that the screen was in and hear the different uh, hear the session that it was recorded, you know. It, it's it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to uh premiere all this stuff. There's going to be some other exhibits on display. We're going to have a movie Ola that you can take a look at. Uh you know, that that ancient equipment for film editing. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I feel so old. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really fun. Yeah, and, and people will be able to uh, interact with our guests, too. We've got a soundy lounge where you can have a cocktail with some of these uh, sound luminaries. Um, and in addition to Mark and Richard, uh, we've got uh, Allison D. Moore, who is a renowned Foley walker, Foley artist, mm-hmm. who's done uh, a bunch of films like The Dark Knight, Frozen, Princess and the Frog, Interstellar. Um, she's an Emmy nominee for Star Trek Discovery right now, which oh is great. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Charles Maines, who's a dear friend of mine, he's a very talented sound designer. He he, he worked on uh, Twister, Starship Troopers, uh, U571, uh, the TV show Seal Team. Um, he's a great guy. He's going to be there for a Q&A. Mm-hmm. And uh, my old pal Eric Potter from my old days working with Richard Anderson He's a very talented sound effects recordist, and uh, we worked together on Edward Scissorhands and a, a bunch of films. He's worked on Serenity, The Dark Knight, Transformers. Uh, it, it's just going to be a lot of fun. If you're, if you're a film fan and you're into film sound uh, and you want to learn more about the craft, this is going to be a really fun uh, fun evening, I think. But you know that so many of our listeners of Behind the Lens are fans of the sound process, sound editing, sound mixing. Uh, oh, sure. So I really, re- and a lot of them are Academy members too. So guys, I hope I really uh-huh. hope that you guys will go out to Scum and Villainy on Sunday, September eighth, uh, to help. Yes, support- I would. I'd really appreciate all the support. There is a there's a suggested donation at the door for of ten dollars to come on in, but I think the evening will be completely worth it. And you'll hopefully win something, and you'll get to meet all these fabulous people and take a picture with Nasker. It'll it'll be really fun. I, I'm I, I'm hoping everyone will enjoy it. Well, how can they not? And plus, you're at Scum and Villainy. <laughs> yeah, that's like my favorite bar now. I recently moved back so to I've noticed. Uh, about a year ago. Yeah, and uh, that's that's like my hang. I love that place. And uh, the owners, uh, JC and Jen, are, are dear friends, and they've graciously. Uh, uh, given given me the place for uh, for a few hours to have this event, I'm very grateful to them as well. Um, yeah, it's just it's going to be a fun evening. Oh God! And what time does it start? 
to we open the doors at two thirty. The event will actually start at three with the first Q and A, and they open to the public. Uh, I mean, the public is invented, in, invited to the event, but they actually open their doors officially, you know, on a regular schedule at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll, we'll pretty much be done with, with our festivities by then. But I'll bet, you, I'll bet you some of the soundies will still hang we'll out. We'll stick and chat around, sure. After that. Oh, my yeah. God. Well, that this is a fun event with fun to be had. A, a true sonic <laughs> experience for all. I sure hope so, and I appreciate you uh, giving giving me a quick plug. Oh well, and you, we got to get you back down here because I know you've been amassing uh, tons of stuff for the museum. So we need to get you back down here yeah, and have you on to talk about a lot of neat stuff all the new laptop. stuff uh, that's happening. We just, yeah, we're, right now I'm cataloging a big chunk of the late David Udall's sound library, oh. which we just recently acquired. Uh, some great stuff he worked on. Uh, Escape from New York, uh, The Thing, uh, Christine, a lot of John Carpenter's films, uh, some amazing stuff. He had a he had a great career, and uh, it's it's fascinating to go through his material. Mm. Well, I can't thank you, my friend, for being our very special surprise guest today <laughs> on our on I our. I appreciate you having me. Well, you know, and considering the only time that we have an expanded show is when you're here, it makes sense that know, it, it's right? an expanded show <laughs> today. A so, times now, yeah. So it's like, hey, yeah. Steve can call in. I had to have an appearance. You had to have an appearance. Well, my friend, (laughs) thank you so much. Thank you, dear. I will talk to you soon, but in the meantime, everybody, the Hollywood Sound Museum movie sound appreciation event, Sunday, September 8th, 2.30, Scum and Villainy Cantina in Hollywood, on Hollywood Boulevard, $10 suggested donation, and you get to see not one, not two, but three Oscars. Three. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you again soon, Steve. Thank you, Debbie. See Thanks. Bye. And that was the incomparable Steve Lee, sound guru and founder of Hollywood Sound Museum. So, Pam, I think we're going to take a short break now uh, before Janice Engel joins us to talk about the kick-ass Raise Hell, Life and Times of Molly Ivins. So... This is Behind the Lens, and we'll be back in a moment. 